Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome. This is a podcast on humanitarianism and transitions to low-carbon future. My name is Ekaterina Zhukova. I'm senior lecturer at Lund University in Sweden. This initiative is supported by the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies, NCHS, as its abbreviation goes. And it is co-organized with my colleague Antonio de Lauri, the research professor at Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway, and also director of the NCHS. And it is my pleasure today to introduce Sarah Rosenberg Jensen, research fellow at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Sarah's work focuses on institutional and geographic aspects of energy in humanitarian settings and how electricity and clean cooking access impacts the lives of refugees. It is very important to notice that beyond her academic work, Sarah has also extensive practitioner experience. She worked as head of humanitarian energy at the international NGO, Practical Action, and as a senior advisor on energy for the UK's Department of International Development. In addition, Sarah was a research lead for the Global Platform for Action for Sustainable Energy Solutions in Situations of Displacement. Sarah, a warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So may I start to ask you, what brought you to working with the questions of energy in humanitarian settings? Yeah, of course. Um, and it's a it's a long story, but I will keep it short. Mm -hmm. um, so I started my very first uh, job, if you like, in this area. I was working for the British Department for International Development, DFID, which is now the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. And I was working as a climate and energy advisor there and uh, not focusing on humanitarian settings at all, um, but looking at broader development and energy access issues. And um, at some point I was seconded into the humanitarian cadre there to help with a few emergency issues that they were having, including in the, the Nepal earthquake and, um, and Ebola and many other things at that time. And after those sort of emergencies, those humanitarian um, crises um, started to, to ease a little bit, um, I was asking the the team there, the humanitarian team, oh, what do you do for energy? And they said, oh, you mean our, our personal energy? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, we try and relax and we, you know, take some time off. We do rest and recuperation. I was like, no, no, I, I mean the light bulbs <laughs> and the electricity sources and the cook stoves and the firewood. And they were like, oh, we don't know. 
And this started an entire conversation about why they didn't know and what what people what sources of energy people were using in refugee camps and in crisis situations, and also about the emissions um, that are coming from the diesel generators, which are so often used in humanitarian response. Mm-hmm. And from that, we started a very small research project called the Moving Energy Initiative with Chatham House. Um, and I was still then working in the donor on these on these topics. And it was very interesting to me to see these first research publications emerge, really starting to understand the landscape of humanitarian energy, what institutions were doing what, all the different terminology that was used. Um, and it was very interesting. And so my first involvement, I guess, with the sector was was through the Moving Energy Initiative at Chatham House. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided this was really the topic for me. And I left uh, DFID and I went to work for Practical Action um, at the same time doing my, my PhD, my DPhil at the University of Oxford on this topic. Um, and I have never left humanitarian energy since, and I don't intend to. Um, and now I, I research the, the work at the University of Oxford, and um, and as you as you mentioned in my in the intro, also work as a as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been quite the journey seeing it evolve from these early donor discussions in the early days um, to seeing it now, where it's a flourishing you know flourishing su- sector with so so many people employed in it, so many projects, so much donor funding going into it mm-hmm. um, but still on the ground in the refugee camps especially very little is moving for displaced people that are really struggling still to access energy they're paying huge amounts for it um, and that the access that they have is is absolutely minimal um, so yeah I really try and uh, you know make this the focus of my, my practitioner work and my academic work mm-hmm. um, but this just huge gap in knowledge is really what what brought me um brought me to to study it and then now to to work in it as a you know as a researcher mm-hmm. and uh, i can um, uh, proudly say that you are a founding mother of the concept humanitarian energy so uh, if you don't mind sharing how have you come up with this concept uh, in both academic sense theoretical sense but also in a practical sense uh, yes, yeah, sure. And actually, you're not the only one to call me the mother of it. Uh, I joke sometimes I'm not the mother, I'm the grandmother. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's reflecting on my own aging process. Um, so firstly, the most important thing to say is I did not invent humanitarian energy. There has always been firewood. There have always been diesel generators. There have always been people using electricity sources and light bulbs and, and burning sticks for energy and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, my role was more to, to name it um, and actually the, the reason we called it like this was I was looking for a job title when we created the job at Practical Action mm. um, and we called it humanitarian because it's in humanitarian settings and we called it energy because it's in energy on energy <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and for me interestingly um, there has been really a lot of debate about about what the sector should should cover Mm-hmm. Um, initially, certainly through the Moving Energy Initiative, it was very focused on refugees and refugees specifically in camps, which, as anybody who knows humanitarianism well, is actually a minority of people. Um, the vast majority of people in the world who are facing crisis are internally displaced people, so refugees who haven't left their country, sometimes referred to like that, IDPs. Mm-hmm. Um and um, are people who are experiencing natural disasters and other short-term forms of crisis and and emergency. And actually, long-term protracted refugees in refugee camps is is a smaller minority of people, a very important group of people, um, but just in terms of the numbers, a smaller group. And so we use the term humanitarian to cover all of these contexts, 
to cover the emergencies, to cover natural disasters, to cover forced migration, to cover people who have moved across borders, refugees and people who are within their countries, mm-hmm. IDPs and migrants who are, you know, going across other borders, people affected by climate change. It's really a very broad um a broad term Mm -hmm. uh, and there is still some debate in the sector about whether you know it should just cover forced displacement or also include emergencies but Mm -hmm. I see the umbrella term that is humanitarian energy being very useful as a as a way for people facing very similar issues and topics to come together and work together collaboratively Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah that's uh, but I don't take too much credit what I will say is that we have published a, a quite a nice paper that um talks about all of these issues with my colleague Dr. Hajar Al-Kado um, mm-hmm. when she was at the University of Dublin um, through the the HEED program. Um, I can send the reference afterwards if you like, but mm-hmm. um, this paper is on definitional differences and covers this and, and what the term humanitarian energy really means. Um, so that's a good one for anybody who'd like to read in more detail about, mm-hmm. about this topic. And would you like maybe to um, say how it's called, the title of the paper, so the listeners can also Google uh, after uh, the podcast? Yes, but then I would have to remember exactly how it's called. Uh, yes. <laughs> let, me, um, let me just look it up. It's called yes. something like um, Definitions and Differences, mm-hmm. um, and it's published certainly with with the HEED program at Coventry University, which is the Humanitarian Engineering and Energy for Displacement program, the HEED program. And that's mm-hmm. actually a great resource for people um, in general. Yeah, the paper is called The Definitions and Differences, The Evolving Space of Humanitarian Energy, mm-hmm. um, or something like that. I can even send you the link there and uh, yes. put it for people. But um, yes, if you Google it, it'll come right up. <laughs> yes, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and throughout your work, what has been the most important finding or the most surprising or the most disturbing, if you like, finding of yours? Yeah, so, I mean, so many things over the many years. Um, I guess the the biggest thing and the thing that I'm thinking about most often at the moment is um, this sort of access versus provision issue. So I think when we think about a refugee camp, when we think about a displacement context, we think about what are the energy needs there? Mm-hmm. What cook stoves are people using? What fuel are they using for cooking? Um, what sources of lighting and power are they using? What are their businesses using? Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of their electricity needs, their lighting needs, um, and of course their cooking needs, which is a very important part of, of energy needs. We think about access and whether people have a smaller amount or a larger amount and how much they pay for it. Um, this is the sort of standard way in the energy access world of, of, of thinking about things. And this is measured by the, the tier framework of the World Bank, the mm-hmm. um, uh, multi-tier energy framework, the MTF. Mm-hmm. And so we think about access. And I think many times in my research, people think about energy access as a binary, as on or off. You either mm-hmm. have energy access or you don't. Whereas actually energy access is not binary. It's mm-hmm. on a scale. Mm-hmm. Um you can have a little bit, you can have a little bit more, you can have a medium amount, or you can have a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And in the terminology of the World Bank, that's tier zero being not very much and tier five being equivalent to what we have in the Western world, a lot of energy access mm-hmm. with all different types and things. So that has been the conversation around access for a long time. But now we also start to look at provision and who provides that energy, what mm-hmm. systems, what structures, what delivery models, how mm-hmm. much does it cost and who is paying for it? 
And what we find, and this is the finding bit, is that actually the humanitarian system is not providing the vast majority of energy access in displacement contexts. Mm -hmm. It's providing a small amount. It's providing the minimal needs, the basic needs for people Mm -hmm. in refugee camps. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, it's not the humanitarian system that's providing that. It's not UNHCR, it's not IOM, and it's a little bit WFP providing the firewood often, but Mm -hmm. not really. It's actually displaced people themselves through local markets, through micro entrepreneurs, they are buying and selling and trading energy. Mm-hmm. The private sector is very involved, the small private sector, not necessarily, you know, Shell and Total and the big energy companies, but the energy entrepreneurs in camps who are making charcoal themselves, who are setting up small solar home system businesses and who are selling energy through diesel generators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this real community element. Um, and in other types of displacement situations that aren't refugee camps, it's very often um, the larger private sector. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, either the national governments working with the private sector, the big energy companies that are in some countries like Jordan and Bangladesh, um, or it's, uh, it's you know, the, the sort of national private sector who are supplying energy to the house next door and are also supplying energy mm-hmm. to the displaced household by mm-hmm. those types of connections. So it's a very, very complicated picture when you start to look at it in terms of provision of energy. This is one big learning that we've had. Mm-hmm. And I would say the other learning that we've had is is about, um, about renewable energy and about mm-hmm. this transition. Um, of course, now we're all paying a lot of attention to energy in the Western world because the prices, especially in Europe, are going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly the war in Ukraine, and it's um, partly our outdated energy financial systems, mm-hmm. uh, now the way we price energy and the way we cost energy. Um, but within displacement settings, renewables and especially solar power are the cheapest. They've been the cheapest for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's so basic to say that it's sunny in African countries, but it is. And so solar power works really well there. Um, mm-hmm. And it, solar is a distributed technology, which means it's a small technology you can have big solar farms but you could also have small handheld we call them solar home systems and they can move with people they can become bigger or smaller Mm -hmm. depending on people's needs Mm -hmm. and so for the electricity side of things renewable energy and and certainly solar power particularly um for electricity needs is really a um it's a kind of no-brainer and it's um it's happening independently of any organized action in all of the 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 places that we work in um so these are just a few of the reflections i would say that i'd also draw your attention to to our recent report with the gpa which um, outlines the entire humanitarian energy sector in 2022 and many of the findings and knowledge that we have right now as a sector and Mm -hmm. that report does a lot more justice than i could right now in talking about these findings and that's called the state of the humanitarian energy um sector report so that's report 2022 mm-hmm. uh, and it's produced by the gpa which is the global platform for action and sustainable energy and humanitarian displacement settings um so yeah do look that up if you're interested in more to learn more about these um these findings and also where we are as a sector um today in 2022 mm-hmm. thank you so much for this reference and why do you think that humanitarian energy is so understudied academically and there is not so much engagement by humanitarian actors with it 
Yeah, I mean, these are two actually totally different questions. <laughs> <laughs> In one. <laughs> exactly. Um, so from the, from the academic point of view, um, I think we've been in our little boxes. So the energy access scholars and researchers, they look at energy access all over the world. You have these electricity specialists, a lot of engineers, a lot of people working on the social aspects of cooking, for example, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just never thought to do their research in refugee camps or displacement settings. They've got enough research to be doing in, you know, mm-hmm. your average rural village in Kenya or in India or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this sort of, yeah, almost just gap from the energy studies point of view. From the humanitarian sector, from refugee studies, for example, which is where I'm based academically at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and forced migration studies more broadly, I think it's just a, a lack of knowledge about how important energy is in our daily lives. We just mm-hmm. take it for granted. Mm-hmm. We're sitting here, this call wouldn't be possible without Wi-Fi, without a computer, without the lighting, without the recording software. All of those things are electrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you hadn't had your breakfast this morning, you'd be quite hungry. So the cooking is also important um, in these spaces. And I think people just generally uh, take energy for granted. And so I do a lot of work to try and, you know, encourage um scholars academics but also practitioners um to understand energy and understand why it's important for our lives and if it's important in our lives it's also of course important for displaced people mm-hmm. um the practitioner why that why the practitioner world hasn't taken it more more seriously until now that's a slightly different thing i think in the in the humanitarian world certainly it is recognized as as an issue it's just that humanitarians are facing so many issues. They're facing protection issues, shelter issues, water issues, food issues, gender issues, every type of issue you could imagine. And so for them, for a long time, energy was coming low down on the priority list. They were like, OK, let's just do some firewood and maybe give people some lanterns and um, that, that'll be enough to meet basic needs. And I argue very strongly that that doesn't meet basic needs and that energy is a human right and that we must provide it at higher levels within our practitioner work. Um, and together with colleagues from the GPA, um, Chatham House and groups like the Ashton Awards, we really do a lot of research, a lot of advocacy work, a lot of outreach work. I've, we spend the majority of our time, I think, doing that and have done over the last seven years to really say this is such an important issue and people's quality of life and health and safety is compromised without energy access. So it must be an important issue and we must work harder and we must find alternative sources of funding and alternative ways of working to not further burden the humanitarian system. Um, And I think we we have some success in that. UNHCR have a global energy strategy now. Um, IOM have made fantastic progress on energy data and and some decarbonisation projects. Um, WFP have a dedicated energy and food team. And so you really see those institutions start to change quite quickly. Um, The academic world, I have to say, changing a little bit slower. (laughs) It is still a battle sometimes to talk about these things to to academics. Um, But actually, we've just written, um, and with colleagues as well, co-authored some papers, um, academic papers, journal papers, to try and introduce this, this issue to academics as well and say this is why it's important from an intellectual standpoint, not just a practical standpoint. Mm. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I could rant. I'll stop there. But... <laughs> yes, and another question I had was that you also work with uh, ethnographic methods, and I would like to ask you how important they were 
uh, for you to understand this issue and in which spaces in the world um, have you been uh, encountering uh, the issues of humanitarian energy? Um, yes, yeah. I mean, I'm a bit, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an anthropologist or, or an ethnographer, but my, my PhD was, was based on ethnographic methods. Mm. Um, and in terms of how important I, I see it, I think it's the most important thing, actually. Um, even though I'm late, late to the ethnographic party, um, I'm still very much happy to be there. And the reason for that is that it provides both a method and a mechanism for working with displaced people, with refugees particularly, to express their lived experience. And that's true of, you know, ethnography more broadly, but on energy, I find it it is so important because understanding energy is not understanding the light bulbs. It's not understanding the kilowatt hours. It's not understanding, you know, the cost of a light bulb or a solar home system. It's about understanding what energy means to people and how they live it and how they have it in their everyday life. And ethnography and anthropological methods more broadly are a really super valuable way of doing that. And then it becomes almost about stories, about people's lived experience and about their their views and their values about why energy is important. And it becomes less about facts. And in the early days of our sector, we were always using these these facts that Chatham House produced, which were, were fantastic on emissions and CO2 figures and percentage of the people with energy access. And those numbers made made a big difference in terms of getting people to pay attention to this issue. But in terms of actually getting people to do something about it, um, it became about the stories and about not just anecdotal evidence, but the real value of energy in people's lives. So that's why I, I stress it as being very, very important. Um, and for me, ethnography is about really knowing the situation and understanding how it is. And you can always put some nice numbers on something to, to make examples. But the, the more social side, the qualitative evidence side is so important. And I use that through, I embed it throughout my practitioner work because I think it's so important, not just from an academic standpoint, but in the, the work that we do. And so the, the state of the humanitarian energy sector report, the SOAS report that I mentioned earlier, large parts of that are about interviews or about ethnographic experience. We have two refugee co-authors on that report who wrote from their lived experience how important energy is for them and their quotes and their views um, are part of an integral part of, of the chapters of that report, especially chapter one and chapter seven. Um, and so this is why it's important. In terms of my own experience using ethnography as a more academic method, my PhD was on Kenya and Rwanda, comparative case study, um, but I have worked more broadly trying to use ethnographic or social science methods in, in a lot of spaces now, in Jordan, in Bangladesh, all over East Africa, really, um, a little bit in West Africa um, as well. And of course, you know, in the Middle East, especially in Jordan, where there's really a lot of great work on humanitarian energy work happening. Um, and there are huge differences in those countries between how people use energy in Bangladesh versus using it in Jordan versus using it in Kenya. Um, but in terms of the day-to-day -day experience of it, but the and the types of technologies they use and types of cooking pans they use particularly also different. Um, but the basic need for energy access and for having fuels and having lighting and having power, this is this is common across all of those countries and indeed all of our experiences, I think, as people. Um, so, yeah. 
And what radical options or progressive pathways, if you like, do you see for humanitarian energy action? This is such a great question. Um, and I, I feel I'm not the expert on this at all, but um, I see several big things emerging right now that we're talking about in the sector in terms of, you know, radical, really progressive options. One is sort of around direct action and microfinance and especially in refugee camps, working directly with refugees, um, helping them gain access to even this sort of forum, you know, mm -hmm. working at the global levels, at the programmatic levels, at the national levels, so that they are really part of the conversation and that they are deciding on, you know, helping to plan the programs and the decision making and, and all of that. And an important part of that direct action is microfinance. And I really use that in the broadest possible way, not just the, the you know, the specific investment modalities of, of microfinance, but really, you know, very bottom-up financing. How can you work directly with displaced communities to make sure that they have access to financial resources to start solving some of their problems, to start um, changing to renewable and sustainable solutions instead of fossil fuel-based solutions? There's um, a lot of discussion about how that can happen and all the different technologies and delivery models and everything that will be needed to support that. But it's very much the cutting edge of the discussion. It's not like we know the situation already and we know how to, to fix things. It's more that there, there will be a hundred solutions, not just one solution. And, you know, people are really starting to work on that issue. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part is a lot about entrepreneurship investments and how many many refugee camps are in in a way circular economies um, people are living there and spending many many generations there especially in the more protracted situations um, and you see whole cities really bloom up and so we look at how local entrepreneurship refugee-led entrepreneurship that will be there for a long time because that will be people's business and income on energy specifically how those people can provide energy in those spaces um, and how that can become part of the energy economy of um, those communities. Um, and so these are a couple of very progressive pathways. It's very difficult to work on these issues because the donor, the normal donor modality of humanitarianism is give some money to a big donor or a big agency like UNHCR and then they will, you know, buy loads of solar lanterns and give them away to people for free. And that really doesn't work in energy. It might work for water and it might work for food and it might work for shelter, but it does not work for energy. Um, and when we were talking earlier about if that's about learnings, we were talking about how important um, some of these new delivery models are. Um, well, doing distribution differently in refugee settings on energy is is critically important. Um, if you just give somebody a solar lantern, yeah, it might, might meet some of their lighting needs for a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Um, but basic, the very basic solar lanterns, which are supplied in humanitarian emergencies, they don't last more than a couple of years. They're just not designed for that. No matter how good the lantern is, it will not last more than three or five years. And it's a lantern. It, it's the same really as having a candle in your house. You know, it doesn't provide the lighting that you need and it doesn't provide... Um, the electricity you know many of those lanterns are you know they don't even have an electricity function on them they're just lighting let alone to say that that lantern you can't cook with that lantern and so this idea that 
donors will give some money and then a big agency will distribute lanterns for free and that will fix the energy problem is extremely naive. And we work very hard to try and change that understanding and then look at how you can create more sustainable systems, both sustainable from a financial perspective and sustainable from, from a climate perspective, transitioning to renewable and sustainable technologies. So this is some of the cutting edge of those you know, radical progressive pathway discussions. Um, but all of them for me are coming under the umbrella of inclusivity. How can we place refugees and displaced people at the heart of policy and programming? Because, you know, that they are the best people to be doing this in many ways because they really um, understand these issues from their own lived experience. Um, and if you say, okay, we're going to give away some solar lanterns, the first thing they'll say is, but what about our cooking needs? Because they are thinking about all of their energy needs and how important that is for them. Um, and so this idea of inclusivity about how we can change those systems quite radically um, is, is something that we work on from the, you know, progressive, you know, let's say radical <laughs> um, action end. And that also brings me to a question, whether you have encountered in your work the differences of how people use uh, humanitarian energy if they were affected by conflict versus a disaster. Do you think this, the humanitarian crisis itself, also requires a different kind of approach to humanitarian energy? Um, I do. It's not so much that people use energy differently in situations of conflict or disaster. Um, it's it's more the systems that are surrounding conflict and forced displacement versus dis, you know disaster and emergency response from a sort of natural disaster um, point of view, um, and that is largely because those um, the emergency let's say natural disasters as an example, if you have an earthquake or a landslide um, or short term flooding, um, people really are going to go back to their homes or near to their homes hopefully within a very short time frame, weeks, months, sometimes even days, depending on how things happen. And the, all the systems and the agencies and the NGOs that are delivering relief in those situations are extremely short term. It's okay to come in with some lanterns at that moment um, and some very basic lighting and, you know, perhaps a few temporary LPG stoves to or stoves to do some cooking on, because that is going to be days or weeks, perhaps months. Um, and so those systems are relatively well set up for that. At the other end of the spectrum, for the forced displacement, for long term forced displacement conflict situations, like you see um, in, in large parts of the Horn of Africa, you see many refugees in Uganda, for example, in Kenya, um, in Rwanda, in Ethiopia, staying for, for generations. You know, Kakima refugee camp has been there since 1992. Um, this is a lot of years ago now. <laughs> there, are, mm -hmm. there are there are children and and parents born in that camp who have spent their entire lives there or almost their entire lives there. This is not short term displacement. This is years, decades, generations. Um, that's a very different system. That's you know largely managed by UNHCR and, and IOM. Sometimes, quite often, it has been encampment situations. Um, they're having a few emergency lanterns. It's not an emergency anymore. Right? It can't be an emergency for 30 or 40 years. Um, Palestinians displaced, um, you know, all over the Middle East that have been there, you know, for 50 years and plus, really. Mm. 
the response systems that need to be there, the support systems that need to be there for those people are really very different to the disaster systems, or they should be. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they are, I'm saying they probably should be. And mm-hmm. that requires medium term and long term planning about investing in spaces. And I would say that one country that's done that really very well is Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, they said at the at the very start of the Syrian crisis, gosh, are we looking like eight or nine years since the start of that crisis now? They said at the very beginning, these people are going to be here for a while. And even if they're not, by some miracle, the situation resolves itself quickly, there will be other refugees in Jordan that need this support. And so what we will do is we'll make a medium term plan. I think initially mm-hmm. their plan was for three to five years. And now they have this huge framework of response planning. Um, and we're going to invest substantially in the physical infrastructure of camps and in locations like Urbid in the north to receive displaced people. Um, and whether those are coming from Syria or somewhere else, perhaps later on, there will be services. Um, these, and I always remember this very famous, I think it's a quote from one of the Jordanian ministers, these are our brothers and our sisters, and we are planning to support them. And I thought that was so powerful and so, um, you know, emotional. And also that the donors really responded to that, the international donors, and they they put so much money into this. And now you see huge solar and energy investments in Azraq and Zatari refugee camps. Um, they're basically run completely or almost completely on renewable energy. Um, and people are having, you know, tier three or tier four level access, which is not so far off what we have here in the West. Um, and it's cheap, <laughs> relatively, compared to doing it via diesel or a fossil fuel technology. Um, and so these are some of the, the success stories the other end of that is you see Kakama refugee camp that's been there since 1992, where people are still really struggling. And now there are a lot of emerging energy projects there, but not enough, anywhere near enough to meet people's needs. And so in terms of the differences, they, they are substantial in terms of the systems, but not necessarily in terms of people's people's day to day use, because, you know, you need energy for cooking, you need energy for electricity. To some extent, as long as you've got a plug socket, it doesn't really matter where your plug socket is or where you are. It's the plug socket for your appliance that you really need. And at the beginning, when we started to talk about humanitarian energy, you said that you are planning to continue to work on it. So I would like to ask, what are you working on now? And what are you planning or hoping to work in the future? Yeah, sure. Well, at the moment, I'm trying to write a book (laughs) um, with medium levels of success um, on energy needs to describe um, in more detail the experiences that that people have trying to access energy in in refugee settings, particularly. Um, So that's what I'm personally working on right now um, from the academic side. Um, In terms of my plans for the future, I'm, I'm hoping to publish that book. But I'm also going to start working more substantively on institutions and institutional reform so that we're not just criticising. I feel like I've been quite critical today of some of these institutions, but not just criticising the institutions, but also really providing the support and some of the ideas for how they can um, reform and plan more effectively. Um, In my practitioner work through the GPA, I work a lot on inclusivity issues and these radical options we talked about earlier. Um, to to really support that and thinking about how institutions function right now and and how they can change. Um, Yeah, and it's no joke, I I dedicate my time to this. This is, yeah, this is my career for sure. And I don't intend on doing anything else really that isn't humanitarian energy because it's such a huge 
it's a huge topic. There are 102 forcibly, dis- 102 million forcibly displaced people in the world in 2022, and this goes up every day the, with the Ukraine crisis and the crises in in Sudan, in in uh, in Ethiopia, uh, in Bangladesh, everywhere. Really, it's these numbers are really only increasing, um, and the energy needs in those situations are are increasing with them. Um, so it's yeah. In the in the SOAS report that I mentioned earlier, we identify that there's a there's a huge staff shortage in our sector. Um, there's three thousand staff that are needed that we don't have the experts for. So if anybody listens to this and is an energy expert, or even if you're not an energy expert and you want to be, um, please please go and visit the GPA LinkedIn page. We post jobs there all the time. We're desperate for for people. For um, not just experts, but you know, people who want to to do this as as their career, um, because there's there's just no um, there's a tiny number of staff. There's like maybe a thousand of us right now who work on this topic, and that's gone up from the twenty we started with ten years ago. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's really a um, a massive, impressing topic. And with climate change and the climate emergency, um, it's only becoming more pressing because a lot of these humanitarian agencies they use diesel generators. Um, to to power their operations and they're polluting um, globally and locally every day. Um, and so, in terms of a climate change challenge, there's also that angle to it. So, yeah, it's it's a very important topic. Uh, <laughs> I will stop ranting about it uh, now. But yeah, <laughs> but being a founding grandmother, as we were talking earlier, uh, also uh, kind of uh, prevents you from leaving this topic. And I sincerely wish you um, lots of inspiration and energy, personal energy, um, and wonderful colleagues to continue uh, on this journey. Thank you so much for coming and talking uh, to me today. I would like to remind our listeners that um, together with us, it was uh, Sarah Rosenberg-Jensen, Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, and we talked about humanitarian energy. And if you would like to know more about humanitarian questions in general, please visit our website, www.humanitarianstudies.no, and we will be back. Goodbye for now. <laughs>